This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast. My name is Lalita Bhagavathisaran and I'm the Clinical Outreach and Engagement Manager in the Global Health and Global Health Security team at BMJ. Over the past decade, there have been numerous new and re-emerging infectious disease outbreaks around the world. In 2018 alone, we had outbreaks of Ebola, MERS, Nipah, and monkeypox, just to name a few. The WHO recently released a list of the top 10 threats to global health in 2019 that will demand attention from health partners around the world. And this includes the threats of global influenza pandemic, antimicrobial resistance, vaccine hesitancy, and Ebola and other high-threat pathogens. The list also included the threat of weak primary health care systems and fragile and vulnerable settings. We know that infectious diseases are caused by viruses, bacteria, and other pathogens. But some would say that infectious diseases are the biological manifestation of social inequality. This is an underexplored view, but one that our guest today has been researching. Dr. Simokai Chugudu is an associate professor of African politics in the Oxford Department of International Development and fellow of St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure to, to be here. Can we start off with looking at the Ebola outbreak in 2014, which was important in driving many of the global health security efforts taking place today? And we often talk about the technical aspects and the costs associated with this outbreak. But but what about the politics of it? So I'm actually going to start uh, with something of a disclaimer here, which is that I uh, certainly not uh, an Ebola expert or an expert on West Africa. Part of why I lead with that with that caveat is to point out, of course, that there are uh, numerous other scholars, including numerous West African scholars themselves, who've been contending um, with that outbreak. Um, so I'd like to give a bit of a plug for colleagues um, like Ibrahim Abdullah and Ishmael Rashid, uh, who've written uh, an edited volume called Understanding West Africa's Ebola Epidemic. And they write this from a political economy perspective. I think it's important to cite this work given that it's driven by people from the region and who are trying to contend with its complexity in quite a well-rounded way. So I think in terms of the politics of how we think about representation, narrative and voice, this is a a crucial step in putting forward their work. I think I'd like to to speak perhaps uh, in slightly more um, general terms and then we might perhaps uh, poke at a few specific aspects of that particular epidemic. So the Ebola outbreak, I think, you know, really exploded onto public consciousness in 2014 uh, across Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. And, and it became this kind of um, signal African nightmare, if you will. Three uh, relatively poor countries on the African continent, um, racked by a number of uh, social crises, then made um, visible by a horrific uh, epidemic, a deadly disease that seemed to be spreading uncontrollably, causing all manner of, of wanton suffering. Um, and I think for quite compelling and, and obvious reasons, um, this ignited a certain kind of uh, international imagination to pour in humanitarian systems and to treat this as the kind of cause du jour, uh, something that the medical and the global health community could rally around to show uh, the importance of health inequality and serve as a framing device for thinking about 
uh, the relevance of global health in the 21st century and of global health security, i.e. something that concerns all of us, uh, whether we reside in rich or poor countries. But there's something about that narrative that I find a little bit dissatisfying. I think that to understand the West African outbreak, one really has to go quite far into history. The outbreak can't be isolated from the long histories of colonialism, imperialism, and slavery that have shaped the trajectories of state formation in those countries, often resulting in highly uneven and inadequate public sector provision, um, states that have been long dependent on foreign aid and trade and not necessarily um, internally oriented towards the needs of their people, uh, states that in various ways remain quite vulnerable to external intervention, whether that's charitable or exploitative. Um, And I think that a running thread in thinking through the politics of that region is trying to understand why public health is something that was both weak, infrastructurally speaking, but also weak in terms of not having popular buy-in. And I'd like to suggest that situating it within some of these longer histories is one way of starting to get uh, at some of the politics that that, that shaped the epidemic. I might then briefly add, of course, that... uh, The other aspect is how the international community as such responds, which is often one that kind of isolates the Ebola outbreak from its social context. And so the images that are filtered through the news and through the media are largely those of an epidemic that seems to erupt from nowhere uh, and about which something must be done quite urgently, often oriented to alleviating uh, immediate suffering and not necessarily thinking about how to improve the structural circumstances and the historical factors that led to the outbreak in the first place. What social and structural conditions uh, lead to outbreaks like this? In my own work, as I've been thinking about how we analyze epidemics, um, I think it's important to try to have some sort of analytical framework for starting to disentangle their complexity. One way of doing this, I suggest, might be to think about an epidemic as having uh, multiple ontologies. I hope you'll excuse the jargon here, but essentially that's a fancy way of saying that epidemics are many things at the same time. They are, as we know, biological events, you know, some kind of health or health-related event happening in excess of um, normal expectancy, but they're also social events. So as we trace the spread of an epidemic, they very frequently map onto existing social and economic relations. You know, their spread is rarely arbitrary. We need to think about, as I've suggested, epidemics as historical phenomena. So tracing um, how an epidemic has come to be. What is the kind of perfect storm that has led to an outbreak at a particular uh, moment in time? We need to think about epidemics as political phenomena. Uh, And here what I mean is that once we declare an event an epidemic, that is, uh, in a sense, a political act. So when you ask me the question, what are the social and structural conditions that lead to an uh, an outbreak, there is, in one sense, a very literal, a very material, a very empirical set of factors that are causing this to occur. But there's also a decision that is taken by institutions with power to say that we have an epidemic on our hands. Uh, and that decision doesn't always neatly correspond to the underlying structural factors. There's often a set of incentives that institutions decide at a given moment in time to address something and to call it an epidemic. So I think asking the probing questions around each of these factors starts to to disentangle this. So if I might concretize that um, briefly, say, for instance, 
the the biological characteristics of a given you know pathogen or infection uh, become exacerbated by um, a set of social conditions, whether that's about what people are eating, where they're living, what access to or water that they may have, what patterns of social behavior are spreading this and so forth. In other words, what are the conditions of um, daily life and how they how do they interact um, with the pathogen? And has there been something that's uh, provoked a change in that? Or, you know, because there usually is some sort of impetus or some sort of convergence of forces that lead to 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 an outbreak um, in the first place. And then I think that there is in the history of epidemics, it's quite unusual for such declarations to be made without there being some kind of human toll. So normally political institutions respond when there is death and suffering at hand that can't be denied. You know, as I mentioned, the West African outbreak was declared, for instance, by the WHO to be a national emergency in August 2014. But the infection had, in fact, been spreading through West Africa back in, in, in 2013. So one would need to go back and ask, well, what was happening in that gap in those several months between the infection first showing its face and it becoming declared an outbreak? Uh, and part of my contention here is that's a political decision. And of course, each case study is a bit more specific, but all of this to say that uh, we're rarely operating in purely scientific terms of saying that, uh, you know, event A necessarily leads to response B. I don't think it ever quite unfolds in that way. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned how the international uh, community often responds, but how should we be responding? <laughs> That's a difficult question. Um, and I think that uh, in part we would need to, to kind of disambiguate, I guess, what we mean by the international community. What I think is that in general terms, a lot of, you know, my, my focus of here is, is, is on Africa, is I think that there's got to be considerable institutional and structural partnership uh, with agencies on the ground. So I think what we often see in many countries is African public health authorities feeling marginalized by the resources and clout of international partners who are responding to the acute problem and say, okay, we're going to come in and, and, and address this. And we have a host of protocols um, that we implement uh, because of the exigencies of emergency and that this has to be done. And I think that, 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 that framing things in terms of emergency creates this notion of urgency, but also serves to delegitimize um, the actors that were on the ground in the first place. And so the question is, how then can international institutions, whether that's in the NGO sector or the humanitarian sector or in large multilateral institutions, start to collaborate um, with actors on the ground and start to align a series of priorities that are oriented both to the demands of the immediate epidemic, but also to situating it within those wider social conditions such that the response helps to, to reinforce structural development to mitigate against future outbreaks as opposed to only dealing with the short-term emergency. That's not a particularly new or novel point, and yet it's one that has to be made repeatedly because this is a pattern that we see happening in so many different case studies. So what would you say that balance should be between local and, and international actors? Do doctors and, and wider international community uh, members sometimes just swoop in and, and swoop out? 
let's talk about medicine briefly. I think, or even public health. I think that both medicine and public health operate within a kind of epistemological paradigm that assumes universalism, right? So when you study medicine, which, you know, was my initial training, you're kind of taught um, how the body works, how treatment works and so forth, and how science works in this very positivist way, that science is a kind of uh, endeavor of incremental and improved knowledge that can work anywhere in the world because, you know, the body is fundamentally the same. And I think that sometimes that frame of thinking translates into how public health emergency responses um, are mobilized. Um, And I think what local actors have to offer is that they temper that impulse towards the universal by saying that actually everything exists within a context. And within a context, we have things like politics, like history, like society and culture that don't necessarily conform towards the universalist assumptions of, say, um, epidemiology, medicine, or public health. And so that's where I think there's got to be that collaboration, that moment of convergence where different kinds of expertise are not necessarily um, held over each other, but rather are combined to understand, you know, what is going on in a given situation. What that looks like now from case study to case study would be quite different. You know, in Zimbabwe, the, the country that I'm from and that I that I know best, we have pretty strong bureaucratic institutions working within public health. And so there's much more institutionalized responses that could, in fact, have stewardship over an epidemic. In West Africa, this was much less so the case, but might mean collaborating at a much more decentralized level through villages, through communities, etc., to work out how a message can be disseminated through a community, how collaborations and partnerships might be formed. And so I think when we talk of of swooping in and swooping out, one of the sort of underlying assumptions about that, why it's problematic, is this idea that kind of Western experts know best because their training has oriented them towards kind of universalist assumptions. Uh, And I'm trying to argue against that and to say that local contextual knowledge is absolutely critical in forming an effective response. Thank you for that. So now just shifting the focus a bit um, to the work that you focused on. Um, You focused on the 2008-2009 cholera outbreak in Zimbabwe. And at that time, it didn't get much news coverage. So why is it that some outbreaks are covered in the news and others are not? Yeah, it's it's funny you ask that. Um, I actually think that the the 2008 uh, outbreak in Zimbabwe did get a lot of coverage at the time. It's just that it's being forgotten about. I'll I'll briefly say a few words about the outbreak for context, uh, particularly for your listeners who might not be familiar with it. Zimbabwe's 2008 cholera outbreak began in August of that year, initially in the kind of high-density residential areas that surround the capital city, Harare. The disease then rapidly spread into peri-urban and rural areas before crossing the country's borders into each of our neighboring countries. That's South Africa, Botswana, uh, Zambia, and Mozambique. Over a period of about 10 months, uh, the epidemic infected nearly 100,000 people and caused over 4,000 deaths. Uh, And at the peak of the epidemic, it had an an exceptionally high case fatality rate. Uh, And so that 2008-2009 cholera outbreak is the most extensive uh, in recorded African history. Now, at the time, the outbreak was part of a kind of litany of catastrophes that was affecting Zimbabwe. Before the outbreak, there'd been a highly disputed presidential and parliamentary uh, election in Zimbabwe, in which then-President Robert Mugabe uh, lost the election in the first round, 
but it it had to go to a runoff because it wasn't a decisive victory for the opposition. Um, and then that period of the runoff was marked by some of the worst political violence um, that has uh, afflicted the country since it gained independence. Uh, at the same time, there was uh, a crisis of hyperinflation of the local currency and economic collapse. You know, at the time, uh, an egg, an individual egg, cost about two trillion Zimbabwe dollars. There was uh, a crisis of food, uh, food insecurity and so forth. So all of these factors created this extraordinary and multifaceted crisis that was being covered in the, the press, but with rapidly shifting uh, attention between different facets of what was going on. I think that the cholera outbreak did get quite a bit of attention then, but eventually got lost around much of the heated polemics, particularly around the figure of Robert Mugabe, who's been long reviled within the British press. And I think that did a disservice to understanding what was happening on the ground. So in my own work, I tried to tell the particular story of that cholera outbreak, but then relating it to um, the kinds of narratives that emerge from it. So now going back to your your more general question about why some epidemics become newsworthy uh, and others don't, I think in part is about a series of political interests in operation. You know, it is no coincidence that Zimbabwe, a former British colony with a political leader who was seen to have ruined the country and to be an outspoken critic of Britain, received extremely negative press coverage. And even when the outbreak did occur, many of the stories that were present were not so much about the suffering on the ground, but were much more about portraying uh, an aging and despotic leader causing havoc in his country. A series of other epidemics get lost uh, within the social, political and historical circumstances of their occurrence uh, and on whose interests they seem to reflect. And so I think that when we're looking at reporting of, of epidemics, you know, virtually nothing we hear about is ever to do with the character or the epidemiology of the epidemic itself, and very much to do with the image of the country, with the politics of the country, uh, with the politics of those who are reporting on the country and so forth. Um, the final point I'd make, as well as that, a number of African governments, for instance, like to disguise the fact that they have epidemics present. For instance, cholera is quite a shameful disease to have. It's associated with, with dirt and with filth, with a failure to provide basic services. And it's quite an indictment to have cholera in your country. It damages the economy, it damages tourism and so forth. And so in this sense, uh, our own leaders and governments are complicit in shaping the narratives around epidemics, often through trying to hide or disguise or obfuscate that epidemics are, are going on. And that's also a crucial part of the story. So um, no doubt there will continue to be new outbreaks of infectious diseases uh, in the future. What do you think doctors and those working in the global health field should keep in mind uh, when working on something related to infectious diseases? That's an excellent question. I think that certainly from my experience of the medical field, um, both you know, as a practitioner in, in my previous uh, professional life, uh, but also in the collaborative work I do with global health workers, I think that global health institutions are very good at the technical stuff. I think that uh, public health as a field is very good at the technical stuff, biostatistics, epidemiology, emergency response, and so forth. But what I think is that 
um, epidemics really do compel us to start to think in much more interdisciplinary ways. And part of that means uh, integrating a lot more social science into the training of doctors, a lot more um, historical thinking into the training of doctors. I, I, I'm often struck uh, when I speak to, to medical workers about history. It's often seen as something um, that's not quite relevant to new and evolving circumstances. And yet the old aphorism um, that you can't understand where you're going unless you understand where you're coming from holds true. That so many of the lessons that we see from Ebola, malaria, cholera, HIV, have been written about and talked about quite extensively amongst groups of scholars who've been documenting historical experiences of these illnesses from different parts of the world. And so I think that bringing these bodies of thought together begins to equip a generation of global health uh, scholars, practitioners, and leaders to understanding the complexity of the circumstances that they're entering, understanding ways in which context shapes what they're able to do, what they're not able to do, and being a bit more alive to um, the politics of different kinds of action. In other words, being a technocrat is not something that can exist in isolation, but is always, always, always uh, embedded in a, in a web of social relations. And so the challenge is to start to, to integrate the kind of interdisciplinary thinking that allows uh, global health people to negotiate that web of relations uh, much more effectively. Well, great. Thank you so much, Dr. Chigudu, for your thoughts and insights on this topic. And, and thank you all for listening. We hope that this podcast will make you think about politics as well as microbiology when you look at infectious disease outbreaks. Thank you very much. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.